Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. My educated guess is there is a decent overlap between my small, elite listenership and the far larger one that has been watching The Crown on Netflix. The current season of The Crown is focused on the royal family and Margaret Thatcher. In a very real way, I owe my career to both. Because of my reporting on the Queen and her wayward progeny and the Prime Minister for NPR and others in the late 1980s and early 1990s. I will tell you my royal family stories another time. But as Britain's Brexit future is being decided as I record this script, I want to tell you about Mrs. Thatcher. The thing that has annoyed me most about this season of The Crown has been the way it depicts the late Prime Minister. Gillian Anderson's approach has been to show Thatcher as some kind of doddering reverse snob, a small-minded, stubborn person insulted and surprised by the reality of the monarchy. This is the way the part is written by Anderson's real-life partner, the series creator, Peter Morgan. I'm not offended by this. Artists can interpret history and historical figures however they like. But the factual truth is this. Margaret Thatcher was an enormously powerful, radical, and until the last few years of her premiership, successful politician. She was a singular figure in the history of contemporary Britain, and the country is still living under her spell. Thatcher was 54 years old when she became prime minister, at the peak of her physical and intellectual powers. Gillian Anderson, by the way, is 52, so she's roughly the same age. Thatcher completely reshaped Britain's economy and society. Many people didn't like those changes. If you've listened to enough of these podcasts, you can guess that I'm among them. But that doesn't detract from her accomplishment. Even today, Thatcher gets very little credit from Britons who opposed her, which may explain why Morgan wrote the caricature he did. This is especially true of those women who celebrate every female first as a shared achievement, yet somehow Britain's first woman prime minister remains a hate figure. My guess is for many younger women at the time, and those of her own generation who disagreed with her policies, it seemed as if she had done none of the hard work of feminism and yet was its main beneficiary. Then and now, I often heard people point out that Thatcher's husband, Dennis, was a senior oil company executive. He made a substantial living, and so she was free to pursue politics almost as an avocation while raising children and keeping house with the help of staff. Not really. The fact that she was not part of the feminist movement didn't make her rise to prime minister any less difficult. She reached the top for the same reason many individual women reached the top. She was smarter than and willing to outwork the men around her. The conservative party she came up in, the party of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, was as sexist as any institution in Britain. But she pushed past party elders because she was clearer in her understanding about what the party should be as Britain's post-war settlement unraveled during the Great Inflation after the oil price shock in the autumn of 1973. The Conservatives, led by Prime Minister Edward Heath, were in power when that seminal event occurred. And you can listen to my series, Autumn 1973, at the FRDH website, www.goldfarbpod.com. 
A few months later, Heath's conservatives were voted out of office. The following year, Thatcher became leader of the party, and here she had a bit of luck. The Labour Party was in government and ended up carrying the blame for the wasted decade of the 1970s. Inflation peaked at 25% the year she became leader and was still nearly 14% when she took office in 1979. Thatcher used those years of economic pain to reorganize her party and plan for what would happen when she won the next election, as she was certain she would. She was a not unskilled politician. The Conservative Party, like most political parties, was a coalition. She knew when to reach out to those more traditional Tories, one-nation types, who were interested in sustaining, conserving the status quo as it had evolved since 1945, while at the same time gathering around her the radical thinkers who would provide the policies that would change the country. She was also able to convey a sense to the public that, unlike other politicians, she actually had core principles. And she did. She was given the nickname the Iron Lady well before she even became Prime Minister. When she actually got the top job, she unhooked the British economy from its statist mooring. As she had been told by traditional cabinet advisors, the result was a recession and a resurgence of inflation. As always, the economic pain was felt most acutely by those who earned the least. Civil unrest followed. Her personal approval rating dropped to 23%. The men around her told her to change course. She refused. You turn if you want to, she told the Conservative Party conference, the ladies not for turning. When the Argentine government, a fascist military junta, seized the Falkland Islands, a British possession in the South Atlantic, Thatcher went to war over them. Located a few hundred miles off the Argentine coast, with a population in the very low four digits, the war was unpopular among the same people who thought she had piggybacked to power on the struggles of feminists. But British forces retook the islands, In the following year, as a direct result of the defeat, the Argentine junta fell. Britain's anti-fascists did not thank her for hastening its end. Then Thatcher went to war with her own people. In 1984, she provoked a confrontation with Britain's mining unions. The coal industry had been nationalized as part of the post-war reorganization of British society. The miners' union was iconic. It was also militant, and by breaking it, Thatcher could break union power across the board. Her hand-picked leader of the National Coal Board began to close down mines. The miners, as expected, went on strike. The confrontations between strikers and police became violent. At Orgreave Coal Pit, a demonstration was broken up when mounted police charged into strikers. It was all very 19th century. After a year, the strike ended in Union capitulation. Coal mine after coal mine was shut. The Labour Party voting communities, where mining was the sole source of income, were reduced to penury. While the miners' strike was going on, Thatcher met Mikhail Gorbachev, a star on the rise, a year away from becoming general secretary of the Soviet Communist Party. This woman, who sneered the word socialism like it was slime she wanted to scrape off her shoe, pronounced Gorbachev was a man she could do business with. 
Gorbachev regarded that praise as the key for starting the process that would lead the Soviet Union and the U.S. to reduce their nuclear stockpiles. Thatcher's popularity went up and up, and it was around this time I moved to London. The royal family at that moment was a pleasant anachronism. The place I moved to was Thatcher's Britain, her creation. Now, the reason I tell you all this is not just to correct Peter Morgan's interpretation of the era, but because of what happened next. In 1987, she won her third election in a row. She won it handily, not on the scale of her victory in the election just after the Falklands War, but still, a landslide. And not for the first time in history, power began to unravel a politician's better instincts. Thatcher lost any feel for the basic collegiality needed to run a successful government in the British system. She became autocratic and abusive to her cabinet. She pushed through a domestic measure, the poll tax, that virtually everyone in the cabinet told her would fail. It led to demonstrations by England's famously sanguine middle class. One of these demos in London devolved into a riot. But the main issue in this third term was Europe. The European community, as the European Union was then known, began to take moves for closer integration. Thatcher initiated the process that would turn the European community into a single market. France's François Mitterrand and Germany's Helmut Kohl wanted to take integration further into political and monetary union. Thatcher resisted this. In European politics, not all countries are created equal. Britain, France, and Germany carry more heft. The big three's arguments were intense. These arguments about the direction of Europe became bitter in Brussels and in Downing Street around the cabinet table. Her cabinet had a good many pro-Europeans, and when the EC began making moves towards closer political union, for some leaders, the logical step following the creation of the single market was complete monetary union with a single currency, the euro, and supranational governing structures. She argued against it in the House of Commons. What they're proposing now, an economic and monetary union, is really the back door to a federal Europe, and we totally and utterly reject that. She concluded her speech about a federal Europe. No! matters came to a head in the autumn of 1990. She had already lost popularity in the country because of the poll tax. Now she lost the support of key figures in the Conservative Party. By custom, in the British system, the Prime Minister is the leader of the party with the majority of seats in Parliament. Thatcher was challenged for the party leadership. She failed to win sufficient support on the first round of balloting. She pushed on for a second ballot, but she had been mortally wounded. Many in the parliamentary party threw their support to her challenger. The party's grandees, the men in grey suits, visited her to tell her the game was up and she would lose a second vote. Before it was held, she resigned. That was exactly 30 years ago, on Thanksgiving Day. I was working for NPR as a freelance cultural reporter at the time, but because it was a holiday, the London bureau chief had gone away for a few days, and he asked me to babysit the bureau in case news happened. Thatcher's resignation certainly qualified as news. I spent the next 48 hours filing relentlessly, and so I became a hard news guy. 
and although she's been dead for seven years, she still profoundly influences public life. The Conservative Party in the UK is run by Thatcher's children. Brexit is their project. Following her ouster, Thatcher supporters formed a biased and self-serving narrative of betrayal. Their beloved Prime Minister had not been deposed because she had succumbed, as many other long-serving leaders throughout history, to egomania, or that the poll tax had alienated many people, including Tory voters. They focused on her conflicts with her cabinet over Europe. Europe and those that supported Britain's membership in the EU became the enemy. Her words, no, 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 became the guide for a faction of the Conservative Party. Within a year of her defenestration, three disaffected party activists, Alan Skidd, Craig McKinley, and Nigel Farage, had founded a new party, UKIP. It had one purpose, getting Britain out of the EU. The Conservative Party began a slow, steady purge of those considered wet, her term, on Europe, Thatcher's handpicked successor, John Major, managed to keep Britain out of the deeper integration France and Germany embarked on, the Euro and a border-free continent. No matter, conservative backbenchers decided Major had betrayed the woman who had made his career, and they paid him back by making his premiership a misery. He lost the 1997 election by a landslide to the Labour Party, led by the deeply pro-European Tony Blair. In the new century, the Conservatives would be led by a group who were at Oxford University during Thatcher's glory years. They had been so traumatized by her removal from office, they spent their lives trying to bring her rule back to life. Former Prime Minister David Cameron was a more emollient figure than Mrs. T, easygoing, but he and his Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, used the crisis caused by the crash of 2008 to impose a program of austerity that would have done Thatcher proud. They rolled back the welfare state and opened its services up to the private sector. Cameron and Osborne didn't even have a majority in Parliament. They were in a coalition, but rammed through an economic program with the same blunt force she used on cabinet opponents. Mrs. Thatcher called herself a conviction politician. So were they, even if they hid their convictions behind a veneer of public school good manners and amiability. Then Cameron called the referendum on British membership of the EU. Many close British observers of their country's politics wonder why he did it. The EU was no longer a subject of national controversy, but the issue still roiled conservative activists. The wets were long gone, and Cameron, maybe to get some backbench peace, decided to put it to a vote. He campaigned to remain. Current British Prime Minister Boris Johnson famously wrote two columns, one explaining why he was in favor of Remain, a second why he would campaign to leave, went to see Cameron, his contemporary, at both Eton and Oxford, and told him he was going to campaign for leave, published the leave column, and the pair fell out. Now this is interpreted by Britain's leading political analysts as an adult conflict over ambitions for the top job. As an outsider with a privileged view, I disagree. I don't think anyone since Major could have been elected leader of the Conservative Party without being a Eurosceptic. My guess is that Cameron knew the risk of a close vote but felt, so what if we leave? It's not the end of the world. 
Johnson was similarly Eurosceptic. Yes, he's a narcissist, and all his political actions can be seen as serving an end, himself, but he made his name as the Brussels correspondent of the Daily Telegraph in the early 1990s, cranking out reams of anti-EU stories, some of them occasionally accurate. He didn't do it just for money or career advancement. He, too, was okay with Britain leaving the EU. And, ironically, so were the former mining areas devastated by Thatcher. She wields an influence from beyond the grave. As I record this, history is repeating itself. Not the second time as far as, but seventh, eighth, ninth time. And when something keeps going on this long, it's no longer a farce. It's simply madness. Negotiations in Brussels will go on past midnight deadlines. Perhaps there will be a last-minute prime ministerial dash to Belgium to seal the deal. I lost enough night's sleep when John Major was prime minister and negotiating the Maastricht Treaty to know the drill. But perhaps this time there will be no deal. Precisely 30 years after Thatcher's political murder, her children are avenging her, marching to the slogan she gave them. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit, and while you're there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.